Hey there, Rebel Emmers, Salim Rezai here. Before we get into Rebel Critcast episode 2.0 with Frank Lodicerto, I have a couple of quick announcements. The first one is, for those of you interested in medical education, MedEd Evolved is coming to AAEM. This is their yearly scientific assembly occurring in Phoenix, Arizona. We'll be putting on a pre-con workshop that's going on all day from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., April 19th, 2020, at the Sheraton Grand Phoenix. The website to register for this is www.aaem.org backslash aaem20 backslash program backslash precons backslash meded hyphen evolved. You definitely don't want to miss out on this opportunity. There's only 50 spots available. You'll have the likes of Haney Malamet, the Repinchecks, and some surprise guest appearances. The second announcement is that the Rebellion and EM 2020 Clinical Conference registration is finally open. This will be occurring on June 5th through 7th, 2020 in San Antonio, Texas. There's only 200 spots available, so you definitely don't want to miss out on your chance for this. And just to add a little bit of sweetness to this registration, we're having our social event on June 6th at the Alamo, and this is included in your price of registration. To register for this conference, go to www.rebellioninem.com. And now on to Rebel Critcast, episode 2.0. Hey, welcome back, Rebel EM listeners. This is the second episode of Rebel Critcast. This is a podcast focusing on the delivery of critical care to all age groups, including pediatrics and adults. I'm your host, Frank Lodicerto. I'm a practicing adult and pediatric intensivist in Geisinger Medical Center in Danville, Pennsylvania. In the next two episodes, we're going to be talking about high-flow nasal cannula, or heated, humidified nasal cannula. This episode, I'll give you a brief description about what high-flow nasal cannula is, but spend most of the time talking about how it works, what are the mechanisms by which we think it works. In episode two, we'll talk about what are the indications of both adults and children, and lastly, end with some practical tips of how we use um, high-flow nasal cannula in clinical practice. So let's get started. So what is high-flow nasal cannula? You may or may not have seen it. Most of you may have seen it because it's become very popular. When I was a fellow, I won't tell you how many years ago, uh, it started to become very popular. In fact, I had no idea what it was. Uh, and someone suggests, hey, you want to try high-flow nasal cannula? And I was in the pediatric ICU. I said, sure. At the time, I thought it was just a straight nasal cannula cranked up with really high flow rates, but I found out that that's not true. Let me describe just briefly what it is. So it is a device, and there's there's different companies who make the high flow device. Some companies will go up to 50 liters of flow, where others will go up to 60 liters of flow, and they're separate adult and pediatric units, which uh, which will the pediatric units will only have limitations on what flow it can go up up to, which will be as we'll talk about in episode two, what is a standard flow rate in children and um, what is the dose of that flow. So we'll talk about that. But what is it? So it will separately, this device will separately give you up to 100% FiO2. It does that by utilizing a filter, which will entrain various forms of uh, room air to uh, help you titrate how much oxygen you want delivered. But it can go up anywhere from 21% to 100% FiO2. It can give you, as I mentioned, flow rates of up to 50 to 60 liters, depending on which brand you're using. And how it's able to do this, because if you were to deliver standard cold nasal cannula oxygen, this would be very uncomfortable with flow rates that high. 
So how we're able to deliver flow rates up to 50, 60 liters is by heating and humidifying that uh, gas being delivered to your patient. In fact, it heats it to 37 degrees with 100% humidity. And again, I'll talk about how the heating and humidification benefits in terms of mechanisms of action, but this is really the key of how we're able to deliver flow rates that high. So let's get started. Let's talk about the mechanisms by which we uh, believe hyphonasal cannula works. And I did come up with a mnemonic. I know some people don't like mnemonics. In fact, I remember in medical school, I used a lot of mnemonics and now I can't remember what the mnemonic was. And once I remember what the mnemonic was, I can't remember what each letter stands for. So if you like mnemonics, great. If you don't like mnemonics, hang in there. The mechanisms of action that I'm going to describe about how high flow works are still going to be true. So let's get started. The mnemonic is high flow, H-I-F-L-O-W. So let's start with the H. The H stands for heating and humidification. And as I mentioned, this is one of the most important mechanisms as we would not be able to deliver flow rates that high to patients if it weren't heated and weren't humidified. Just taking a step back, when you give someone standard oxygen therapy uh, through a nasal cannula, you aren't heating it, you aren't humidifying it. So it actually can have some detrimental effects. Well, first it can cause inflammation of the airway and may lead to bronchospasm and increased airway resistance. It also inhibits ciliary function. And it may cost your patient extra energy production because they have to heat and humidify that oxygen. And in a patient in respiratory failure and in shock, to expend extra energy to heat and humidify that oxygen may be costly in your most critically ill patients. So how does heating humidification work? Well, it's sort of just like uh, I described, the opposite. And so instead of giving them cold oxygen, we're heating and humidifying this oxygen, which will help in ciliary function, so help mucus clearance. So if you ever see patients on high-flow nasal cannula have a lot of secretions, they're bringing up those secretions up and um, it helps thin them out and get rid of those secretions. So you can already imagine that, hey, one of the main indications might be pneumonia, which it is. It also will uh, not lead to bronchospasm and, and decreased uh, or increased airway resistance. So it'll help decrease that inflammation in the airway by heating and humidifying that, that oxygen. So you can then think, boy, this may be, have some benefit in asthmatics, which, uh, which there is some data to support that as well. So we're already getting into episode, uh, the next episode, we start talking about indications, but I want you to start thinking ahead about those things. So again, it helps in, in mucus clearance, it'll help decrease airway resistance, and because it's already preheated and humidified, that patient that I've just described in respiratory failure with shock or multi-organ failure, you're not using up this extra energy or ATP production to heat and humidify this oxygen because it's already done for you by the, by the machine. So that's the H. That's the heating and humidification part. What's the I stand for? Well, the I stands for decreasing our inspiratory demand. So it decreases our inspiratory demand. So let me give you an example. Let's say we have a, a patient, uh, and I'll give it a, as an adult patient. Let's say it's a 70 kilo uh, adult man or woman, but they come in in respiratory failure. And so they're breathing, let's say 30, 40 times a minute. So increased work of breathing. This is a patient who's tachypnic, uh, accessory muscle use, working hard to breathe. Let's say their tidal volumes are 400 cc's. They're breathing fast. They're in the uh, they're in respiratory failure. So you put them on 
you tell your therapist, hey, put them on the six liters nasal cannula. You know, their stats aren't too bad. So, and boy, you said, I've done a good job. I, I put them on six liters. But if you think about it, if they're breathing 40 times a minute at 400 cc tidal volumes, what's their, what's their minute ventilation? So minute ventilation is respiratory rate times their tidal volume. So it's about 16 liters. So this patient is wanting 16 liters in terms of their minute ventilation. You're putting them on six liters. Or even maybe, maybe you're going to put them on a, a non-rebreather, 15 liters. So they want 16 liters. You're giving them 15 liters. They may, this may help them. But let's imagine we give them not only what they want, but exceed what they want, meaning we put them on a 60 liter, 50, 60 liters of flow. So this will not only meet their inspiratory demands, which I've just said is about 16 liters, but will exceed their inspiratory demands by giving them a extra high flow rates. So the hopes is that by not only meeting, but exceeding their inspiratory flow demands in terms of what their minute ventilation is, this will decrease their work of breathing by meeting those demands. And hopefully what we'll see if we're having a good response to the high flow cannula is their tachypnea, so their, their respiratory rate comes down, their work of breathing, meaning their accessory muscle use, uh, maybe their diaphoretic, all these things start to improving. Well, that's a sign that it, that it is working. So we'll talk in the next episode about how to um, start the high flow cannula. But again, I always start the flow high and uh, watch for response. So number two, the second mechanism, by not only meeting but exceeding their inspiratory needs, we're going to decrease their inspiratory demand. So we got the H, we got the I, and we got the F. So F stands for FRC. So this is a little controversial. There's been various studies trying to determine how much PEEP high flow nasal cannula will give you. And the studies have been a little conflicted. Some studies show that it uh, can give you this uh, PEEP effect. Uh, some show may not give you as much PEEP as we think. Well, again, it's going in your nose, the high flow. If a patient is open mouth breathing, you're going to lose a lot of pressure through their mouth. So you probably do lose a little bit of PEEP. And it's going to be very hard to measure PEEP. So what we, what we have uh, seen and what we have uh, consistently studied in both adults and kids is by looking at end expiratory lung volumes. So if we do something called impedance tomography, impedance tomography is a non-invasive way to look at end expiratory lung volumes or lung expansion. What we notice is that if you take patients, if you look at their FRC without getting high flow, and then you look at it with high flow, both in adults and kids, we see that they have an increase in their functional residual capacity or there's end expiratory lung expansion on high flow. And then coming down off the high flow, we see a, a decrease in their end expiratory lung expansion. So we do know that it increases uh, end expiratory lung volumes. The probable mechanism here is by providing PEEP. But again, it's so hard to measure PEEP. And it uh, fit better in my mnemonic to have an F here because I didn't have room for a P. I'm only making a joke here. But it's, it's probably the, the PEEP effect. But it increases the functional residual capacity or causes end expiratory lung expansion and increase in lung volumes. Probably with the mechanism here, again, is PEEP. Again, it's hard to quantify PEEP. So that's the H, that's the I, that's the F. Now on L. Well, L really isn't a mechanism as so much as it is a benefit of using high-flow cannula. The L I have, uh, it stands for lighter. So it's not like you pick up the high-flow device and it's so light, like they're making them so light these days. No, what I mean here by lighter is that it's a uh, better alternative or maybe a more comfortable alternative, I should say to non-invasive positive pressure ventilation in the form of BiPAP or CPAP or endotracheal intubation. 
So we, we can often get away with not having to put a patient on non-invasive positive pressure ventilation or actually intubating our patients by using high-flow nasal cannula. So in both uh, adults and in, in children, you know, parents have described this as they felt like their child's more comfortable. Adults have also sort of described this as uh, more comfortable than, again, the alternative. So L here stands for lighter. Like I said, it's not necessarily a mechanism of action, but it is a benefit of uh, perhaps getting away with using high-flow nasal cannula. And I'll talk about the, the indications of when we should use it. So that's the L. Well, the next one is O. O, o stands for oxygen dilution. So what high-flow nasal cannula does is it decreases the amount of oxygen dilution. Now, this is a, a very important concept to understand. So you may have learned, like I did, when you were a med student or a resident, the rule of uh, four to one. So the rule of four to one goes like this. If you give someone one liter of nasal cannula, it adds about 4% FiO2. So we, we normally breathe, well, we breathe 21% FiO2. So if you put someone on one liter nasal cannula, it's 21%, which is room air, plus 4% per liter. So if you're on one liter nasal cannula, that adds up to 25%. If I put you on two liters, that's an additional 4%. That'll go up to 29%, and then it goes on and on. Up to six liters, well, what we think gives you 45% FiO2. But is this correct? Is this true? And I'm going to say that it's not true. Let's think about this for a minute. So we have this, let's go back to our patient I just described. So the patient is in respiratory failure, breathing 16 liters a minute, meaning that's their minute ventilation. They're breathing 40 times a minute, 400 cc tidal volumes. And you go, I know what to do for this patient. I'm going to put them on a six liter nasal cannula. That'll bump their FiO2 to 45%. Well, let's think about that. Is that, is that actually accurate? So do you think going into their trachea, they're getting 45%? So if they're sucking in, 16 liters. What is that 16 liters comprised of? Well, if they're sucking in through their mouth a, a large volume and through their nose around the nasal cannula a large volume and you're giving six liters through the nasal cannula, that uh, vo amount of volume they're sucking through their mouth and their nose is what percent FiO2? It's 21%. It's room air. So they're breathing a very high rate of room air, 21%, and a much smaller rate at 45%. So as it gets to the trachea, it's going to be much, much closer to 21% than it is 45%. So you're really not giving your patient 45% FiO2, which you think you are, and what you're told that you are by the 4 to 1 rule. So throw that 4 to 1 rule out the door. Uh, it, it's not true. But let's say we had a device that can give you higher flow rates than your breathing. So we talked about in, when we talked about insecure demands, the patient wants 16 liters, you're providing 50, 60 liters of flow. And what I mentioned in the brief description is you can give them up to 100% FiO2. So let's say you give 60 liters at 100% FiO2, a much higher flow rate than your patient is breathing, or they're breathing 16 liters, and hopefully that minute ventilation will go down as you meet their inspiratory demands. But let's just say it stays at 16 liters, but now you're providing 60 liters at 100%. Well, it's going to cause much more uh, or much less oxygen dilution. So you're going to get closer to uh, 100% because some portion of what they're breathing in is going to be room air, and then uh, 60 liters of that is going to be at 100%. But it's not going to be 100%. So if you think you're giving your patient 100%, it's not going to be 100%. There's going to be some form of dilution, but it'll be much closer to 100% 
than it than it will be 21%. So you're giving them higher FiO2. So this will definitely benefit patients in terms of hypoxemia and, and be helpful as it decreases oxygen, the amount of oxygen dilution. So I hope that concept makes sense. So that's the O. And then the last of uh, the last mechanism in my mnemonic is the W. So the W stands for uh, washout or uh, dead space or CO2 washout, you may see it referred to. So what do I mean here? So if you have this same patient, this 70 kilo adult and a woman breathing at extremely high flow rates, before that patient takes their next breath, if you can imagine one second, a bolus of gas, okay, so we don't think of boluses of gases, we think of boluses of fluids, but take a bolus of gas, make a three-dimensional bolus around you, it's 400 cc's that patient is going to suck in. We know that that patient isn't going to, that 400 cc tidal volume, that, that, uh, that bolus of gas that the patient sucked in, that 400 cc's is not going straight to their alveoli for gas exchange, okay? So some of that is going to be mixed with the previously exhaled gas, which is higher in CO2 content and some nitrogen mixed in there. So as they breathe that gas and there's going to be uh, mixed in with that anatomical dead space, okay? That's just what happens. If we then can provide a, a high flow rate faster than or higher than the flow rate that our patient's demanding at let's say again, 60 liters, so using the high flow device, what that does is that flow rate going at 60 liters, whatever FiO2, let's say 100%, what that will do is wash out that anatomic dead space, that gas filled with CO2 and other particles. So we wash it out. So when the patient takes their next breath, we know they're still not getting that 400 cc gas bolus that they sucked in, and it's going to mix with the anatomic dead space. But now what we've done is replace the anatomic dead space. We wash it out because we're giving high flow rates with, let's say, 100% FiO2. So it, it's going to decrease the amount of uh, rebreathed CO2. Uh, this will improve your patient's efficiency of breathing. It'll have a modest uh, effect on decreasing CO2 levels. So you can use it in hypercapnic respiratory failure. So it will have an in the studies, it looked at decreasing uh, CO2 levels or hypercapnia. It'll decrease their CO2 by causing uh, CO2 washout in the upper airway. So that's my mnemonic. So that's how high flow works. The question is, which mechanism is most beneficial for patients? And the answer is we don't know. In fact, what I believe is true is that different mechanisms are going to have beneficial effects for different patients. The CO2 washout may be helpful here. Maybe it's the O2 dilution. Uh, maybe it's the um, decrease in inspiratory demand. Maybe it's the heating and humidification. They're all going to be helpful. So we don't know which one is most important. They're probably all helpful. And in certain patients, maybe one mechanism or two mechanisms or more mechanisms helps that patient get through without uh, hopefully requiring intubation or maybe even using non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. All right. Well, that completes episode two. I hope you enjoyed it. I'll see you next time. Episode three, we'll talk about practical indications in both adults and kids for the use of high-flow nasal cannula and uh, some practical tips of how it works. Uh, thank you for joining me. I'll see you next time.